The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Well, hey, good morning and welcome to Summit Church. It is Easter Sunday and I am thrilled that you chose to be here this morning. The reason that we gather here this morning is really quite simple. Uh, Thousands of years ago when... A few women went to a tomb to prepare a body for burial. They found that that tomb was empty. And the fact that that tomb is empty means that Jesus is alive. And the truth that Jesus is alive gives us all of the hope and all of the purpose that we need to be here this morning. Whether you're aware of it or not, if there were still a body in that tomb, we might as well just pack up, finish the donut holes, and go to lunch. Because that nullifies everything that we believe, all of the hope, all of life. If Jesus is still in that tomb, we have nothing. But church, he's not. He's alive. And that's worthy of celebrating. That's something that, that we come together, not just this Sunday, but every Sunday to rejoice in. The fact that we have hope and life and victory. I found over my life that we as a culture, maybe it's just a human thing, I don't know, but we love to win. We prefer to win over losing. My six-year-old son is playing competitive sports for the first time. It took him losing one t-ball game to realize that he prefers winning over losing. You can see in his face, like, we're not teaching him up like, you're a winner, we don't do that. One loss, he's like, I like to win more. <laughs> We all do. We prefer to be victorious. Thursday night, we have a four-bedroom house, but all of our kids and Paige and I were in one room. We were in one room because that's just what we do as a family. We were flipping through television. There was nothing on, and we stop on this bike race. Now, I don't know what the name of this actual sport is, okay? But there are two teams of four people. They're women who are racing these bicycles, wearing these astronaut-looking suits around this really cool and banked indoor track. Okay, have no idea how you win this sport, have no idea what this sport is called, but we started watching it. And it was the finals of whatever event this is, and it was the United States versus Australia. And they take off, and this entire race lasts four minutes. And every time they finish a lap, there's a thing up on the screen that says, you know, the United States is up by two tenths of a second, three tenths of a second. And we're watching, they're about halfway through this race, and all of a sudden, Australia starts to shrink that lead down. And I'm like, no, you ride, ladies! You did. This, this could have happened months ago, but I'm in it. I, I, we are in it. Anyway, with just a few laps left, Australia takes the lead. I'm devastated. But the commentator, you know, is like, don't worry because something, something Sally, she's coming home. And I'm like, you go something, something Sally because you are not losing this. And sure enough, like Wiley Coyote comes around this last turn slingshots off the back of one of her teammates, and something-something Sally beats Australia by two one-hundredths of a second. It is 9.30 at night on a Thursday night. My kids are on my I come up out of bed like, yeah! Yeah, you take that, Australia! My kids are like, did the good team win? I'm like, they sure did, son! (laughs) We're victorious at this sport I don't understand or know the name of, but we, we were in it! We want it. We like to win more than we like to lose. In church, today, and we get to celebrate a victory that's so much better than that. We're here today victorious because Jesus conquered death. And if it's cool with you, 
I just want to tell you the story of how that happened. And it's kind of a spoiler alert. The big victory doesn't happen until the very end. And there's a bunch of pieces of this story that look like failures, that look like losses. But it all kind of comes together. It's all woven together by the perfect will of God to bring us here on this day, knowing that we have great victory. So, I just want to tell you that story. Before I do that, let's pray and ask God to come meet with us this morning. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, the power of this story to radically change and transform lives. And God, I pray that today, more so than any other day, you would speak to the hearts of those who are far from you. And God, you would show them your love, that they would know you, and that they would leave here looking more like you. Come and speak to us each individually as we need to hear your voice. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So the story starts actually on Thursday night. Jesus has gathered his closest friends and disciples. They had a huge meal. At the end of the meal, the Bible says that they sang a hymn. They had a benediction song. And after they sang, they departed from the upper room. And Jesus took his 11 disciples because Judas Iscariot had snuck out to go betray him. Jesus takes his remaining 11 disciples and they go just a few yards away up onto the Mount of Olives to an olive grove called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now it's apparent that Jesus has used this olive garden many times to pray in the past. His disciples see what's going on. So Jesus, as they get to the gate of this garden, he looks at eight of his disciples. He says, you guys stay here. And he takes his inner three, Peter, James, and John. And he goes, you're, you're my boys. You, you come with me. We're going to go talk. And he takes them a little bit further into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he looks at them and he says, men, I'm anguished to the point of death. Now this catches me off guard because why is he so anguished? I mean, you're Jesus. What, what's going on? Why do you have to have this late night prayer gathering? What, what's about to happen? Well, the reality is that Jesus' hour has come. Up until this point, his ministry, there have been many occasions where men have come to arrest him and take him away, where his life was in jeopardy, but Jesus always knew that he was safe because his hour had not yet come. Yet on this night, his hour was just moments away. And as any one of us should do, preparing for a large, large endeavor, Jesus says, I must pray, but I'm anguished to the point of death because the levity of what's occurring has just hit me. So he looks at his three closest friends, his comrades, his confidants, and he says to them, I need you to pray for yourself. I I would think Jesus would ask for prayer for himself, but he says, no, 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 I'm gonna go pray for myself. I need you to pray for yourself that you will not fall into temptation because the next few hours are gonna get real. And I don't want to see you fall away because of what happens in the next few hours. You sit here and pray for you, that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus goes a stone's throw away and he falls down on his face. And the Bible says he began to sweat like drops of blood. And he prayed. He prayed a pretty famous prayer. He said, Father, if there's any other way, if we can accomplish your will to save all of mankind from their sin, If there's any other way for us to do that, can this cup of suffering pass from me? 
But famously, then, Jesus ends that prayer with, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Jesus gets up after about an hour of prayer, and he goes back to his three closest friends, and he finds them sound asleep. And he says, couldn't you pray for an hour? Maybe you don't understand how big this is. Let's try it again. Uh, I'm going to go pray again. You pray again, okay? And they go, yeah, we got this. We got this. Jesus goes and prays the same prayer, ending it the same way. Not my will, but yours be done. He goes back. This time, the disciples had set up a lookout, so their eyes were open, but Jesus could tell they'd been sleeping because of how droggy they looked. He's like, guys, seriously, you need to understand what's about to happen. You need to be praying. Try it one more time. Jesus goes. He prays the same prayer. He comes back. They're still asleep. He says, get up. It's too late. Look, here comes my betrayer. And down at the gate of the garden, led by Judas Iscariot as the high priest and some of the religious leaders, they're not alone. They've brought the palace guard with them, trained soldiers. They have lanterns and clubs and weapons. It takes them no time to get past the eight guards at the gate. And as they're coming up the path towards Jesus, Jesus hollers out to them, Who is it that you're coming for? And they shout back, Jesus of Nazareth is who we're looking for. And Jesus simply says, that's me. I am he. And at that, John records that these trained soldiers fall back, some of them all the way to the ground. I have no idea why those words were so powerful, but I think that God gave us just a little glimpse of what was really happening here. And so the soldiers and barracks get themselves back up to their feet and they continue to approach Jesus. Jesus asks again, who is it again? Who do you need? Jesus of Nazareth. Well, that's me. So why don't you go ahead and let all these other people go? You, you, don't, have, you don't have any need for them. And it says in the Bible if that happened so that what was written beforehand would be fulfilled, that Jesus wouldn't lose any of those that he had chosen. But these disciples, they're not going down without a fight. And they, they yell out, Jesus, do you want us to fight? Do you, want us, do you want us to fight with you? We will lay down our lives for you. And I believe that every one of them would have at that moment. And Jesus goes, no, if, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. But Peter, Peter doesn't listen. <laughs> Peter pulls out his sword and the high priest's head is right there. He feels like if he takes him out, the rest may scatter. So he swings, but he's horrible with a sword. And he misses the high priest and the servant of the high priest is right beside him. And he takes off that dude's ear. His name's Malchus. I don't know how you miss two heads and get an ear, but he did. (laughs) And Jesus goes, stop, no, no. It's not the kind of rebellion I lead. This isn't how it's supposed to go down. And he reaches down, picks up the ear, pops it back on. You're good. So he he gets him. (laughs) At this point, Judas approaches Jesus because there was a, a sign. Whichever person Judas kissed, that was the one they were to arrest. And so Judas walks up to Jesus, and Jesus stops him before he has a chance to kiss him. He says, are you really going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas doesn't respond, but just kisses him on the cheek, and that was the sign. So at that moment, the soldiers jump in and grab Jesus. They bind him, and they take him away. They take him not to a courthouse or to a jail. They take him to the personal palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, that's illegal. Even in first century Jewish customs, you can't do that. But it's in Caiaphas's living room that they're going to try Jesus. That's illegal also. In Jewish law, you couldn't have a trial under the cover of night so that stuff like this wouldn't happen. But they don't really care because Jesus is making them look bad and they have him now and they're going to take care of this before the sun rises on Friday morning. 
It takes two collaborating witnesses to convict someone in Jewish law, so they bring in false witnesses to make up stories about Jesus. They take part truths and then just take them further. He said he was going to destroy the temple. That's bad. He said he, he came, into the t- came into the temple, turned over the money, changed the tables. That's bad. The problem was the false witnesses couldn't collaborate their testimony. I guess someone wasn't telling them, you both have to say the same thing. <laughs> so Caiaphas gets really upset and he takes it into his own hands. And he stands up in front of the entire court and he looks directly at Jesus and he says, enough with this. I'm asking you point blank. Are you the son of God? Are you the Christ? Are you the one? Jesus hasn't said a word the entire trial. But he decides to speak and he speaks well. He looks directly at Caiaphas and he says, it is as you say. Now that was it. Jesus had just condemned himself. He had just committed blasphemy. He had equated himself to God. He had said he was the son of God. He was going to die now. And he knew that. So if you just condemned yourself, you might as well throw out the next thing. And this is what Jesus says. But I'll tell you one more, Caiaphas. The next time you see me, I'm going to be seated at the right hand of God in majesty then you might be around long enough to get to witness this because then the next time you see me, I'm going to be ascending and descending on the clouds of glory. And Caiaphas stands up and he tears his robe to be all dramatic. He's like, we have him now, boys. You heard it with your own ears. He condemned himself. He's committed blasphemy. According to our law, he must die. So the soldiers come in and they begin to beat him. They begin to whip him. They tie his hands together and they mock him. And they're like, hey, son of God, who just hit you in the face? Prophesy. Who, wh- who was this? And they start to pull him out of Caiaphas' house because Caiaphas has one problem. He's not legally allowed to kill anybody. Rome occupies Jerusalem in the first century, and one of Rome's rules for Jerusalem was you can have your own courts, you can try your own people, but if you're going to kill someone, you need our signature first. So as the sun's rising on Friday morning, the soldiers pull Jesus out of Caiaphas' house, and they take him into Jerusalem further to the palace of Herod. Herod is over Jerusalem, but they got lucky on this morning. There's an even higher-ranking Roman official staying at Herod's palace for the Passover festival. His name's Pilate. Pilate's over Herod. Pilate reports directly to Caesar. Pilate kind of meets him at the gate and says, hey, guys, what are we doing here? And the religious leaders look at Pilate, and they say, we need your signature to execute this man. We found him guilty in our courts, and we, we want to kill him. We want to crucify him. Pilate goes, well, it's awful early to be killing people, and you just had, like, one of your highest religious festivals, so let, let me talk to him at least first. He pulls Jesus into his quarters, and he says, hey, um, they say you're a king. They say you're trying to lead a rebellion. Any of this true? And Jesus goes, well, yeah, I mean, what you say is true. I am a king, but my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my people would come get me. But my, my kingdom's of another world, and so, yeah, I'm kind of a king, and Pilate goes, okay, you're nuts. And so takes him back outside, and the religious leaders are waiting, you know, hoping they're going to have their signature. And Pilate goes, I find no fault in this man. Yes, he says he's a king, but he's a king of an invisible kingdom. I don't see this as an imminent threat to Rome. So I, no, you can't just kill him because he's nuts. The religious leaders aren't going to take that, though. They will not be leaving the palace of Herod without permission to execute Jesus. So they start to incite a little bit of a riot, and it's easy because the word has gotten out now that Jesus has been arrested. 
the, the courtyard in Herod's palace is starting to swell with people who are like, Jesus is in custody. You guys got to come see this. It's getting real. So the religious leaders know they kind of have Pilate in a tough situation. He doesn't want a mob on his hands, so he needs to listen to him, but he doesn't really want to kill Jesus either. So what Pilate's going to do is he's going to try three things to get out of this situation. The first one is more of a legal move. Somewhere in the proceedings, he'd heard that Jesus was from Galilee. And he goes, Galilee is beneath me. Galilee is Herod's territory. You need to, you need to take this up with Herod. And Herod is just down the hallway, so the religious leader's like, no problem, grab Jesus, pull him down the hallway, go into the great hall where Herod's finishing up a multiple-day party. Herod sees Jesus and goes, buddy! Last time you were at a party, you turned a bunch of water into wine. Can you help us out here? Because we are plumb out. Hey, Jesus, I hear you can do miraculous things. Just Can you do some tricks for us, Jesus? Jesus sits there with the man who can expunge him and says nothing. Herod gets frustrated. The soldiers get frustrated. So the soldiers start beating Jesus. Herod just dismisses Jesus. Jesus gets taken back to Pilate. Strike one on Pilate. He has another attempt, though. He says, hey, usually during this time of year, I will release to you one of your prisoners. I've determined that today is going to be prisoner release day. So here are your options, crazy mob. I will give you Jesus, whose greatest crime is that he told you to love your neighbor, or I will release to you this guy named Barabbas. Barabbas led an insurrection. With 200 men, he tried to overthrow the Roman Empire. Didn't work, but he killed a bunch of Roman soldiers in the process, and he's been in prison for this, awaiting his death. So Pilate, thinking, this is a no-brainer. Okay, people. I will release to you Barabbas, the homicidal murderer, or Jesus, the gentle teacher. And the crowd unanimously says, we'll take Barabbas. Strike two. Pilate has one more thing up his sleeve. It's called an appeal to pity. Basically works this way. You beat someone so severely that the crowd or the mob has mercy on them. Mm, that's, that's enough. We don't need to kill him anymore. You've punished him thoroughly enough. The way that the Romans did this was through a thing called flogging. So Pilate had Jesus flogged. The way it worked is that two men, each holding a cat of nine tails, that was a stick about 18 inches long with nine leather strands that came off of it. That's how they get the cat of nine tails. In those leather strands were sheep bone and lead balls. Um, that was excellent at removing flesh from people's backs. And they, two scourgers then, one on either side of the person, would stand as the victim was usually chained to some kind of a pole, and they would start at the shoulders and work down the back over the buttocks and the hamstrings, removing the flesh from the person. You could hit them 39 times legally, but if you hit them 40 times, that was considered inhumane. And this is what they did to Jesus. About half the people who endured a Roman flogging died during it. And they died because when they stood them back up, there was not enough flesh left on their back to hold in their insides. So when they completed doing this to Jesus, they took a purple robe and they draped it on his back, not to help his wounds, but to mock him because purple is the color of royalty. Then they fashioned a crown out of thorns and they stuck that on his head, I'm sure not gently. And then they marched him back to the courtyard of Herod's palace called the Praetorium. At this point, the Praetorium is full. There's people everywhere. 
And they drag Jesus through this crowd, and Isaiah says that he was beaten beyond human recognition. He looked bad. And when Pilate saw him, Pilate was mortified because while Jesus was gone, Pilate's wife came to him and said, I had a dream in the middle of the day. And I saw that man right there. And in the dream, I was told that he is innocent and we're not to touch him. And Pilate knows that he's innocent. So Pilate has one last chance to get the mob to see and have pity on Jesus. So he takes Jesus up on the archway over the praetorium, well above the crowd. And he stands there beside Jesus, beaten beyond human recognition, and he says these words. I believe he chose them wisely. He said, I present to you the man. Not the king of the Jews, not the son of God. I present to you the man. Now I'm sure within the mob there were people who went, oh, that's bad, he's good, we should let him go. I'm sure they existed. But with one seemingly satanic voice, the crowd yells back at Pilate, Crucify him! Crucify him! He must die! We appreciate you tendering him up a little bit, but we're not leaving here without permission to kill him. So Pilate, strike three, he's out. He walks over to a basin of water. He washes his hands. He looks at the crowd and he says, this man's blood is no longer on my hands. And he gave Jesus to them to do with as they pleased. And he betrayed the son of man to save a political career that would be over in about four years. The soldiers then rip the robe off Jesus' back, which would have been excruciating, and replace it with the patibulum, which is the horizontal piece of the cross. It weighed about 75 pounds. They began the march called the Via de la Rosa. Five-eighths of a mile is all out of the gates of Jerusalem and up the hill. The hill is called Golgotha to the place where Jesus would be crucified. It's no wonder in the physical shape that he was in that he couldn't make the walk. He kept falling, the soldiers got mad, so they found Simon of Cyrene and said, you carry his cross. When they arrived at Golgotha, they connect the patibulum to the stipe, which is the vertical piece. They laid Jesus upon it, and then they nailed him to it. One nail in each wrist, one nail in each heel, and then they lifted him up. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. I can't imagine the pain. I can't imagine the sorrow. It was 9 a.m. on Friday morning when Jesus was hung on the cross. He would be on it for six hours, a very short period of time relatively. Some people made it days. But in those six hours, the Gospels record seven sayings of Jesus, seven things that give us windows into what Jesus is actually doing. I believe the first three statements happen before noon, and they all revolve around Jesus taking care of different people. The first of seven statements that Jesus made from the cross was this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first thing that Jesus did while hanging on a cross was forgive the Roman soldier who still had the hammer in his hand. The first thing Jesus did upon the cross was forgive the religious leaders for demanding his life, for doing nothing. 
the first thing Jesus did was to forgive the crowd who was hurling insults and spitting upon him. First thing Jesus did on the cross, I guess, is actually fitting. He forgave. The second statement would come directed at one of the two robbers who were crucified on the left and the right of Jesus. At first, the robbers on his left and right, they were hurling insults as well. But then at some point, the robber on the left had an epiphany. This guy hasn't done anything. He really may be the son of God. And the robber cries out to Jesus, don't forget me. Don't forget me. Jesus, looking over with compassion, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And the second saying from the cross is Jesus taking care of the eternity of the robber on his left who actually deserved to be there. The third statement's gut-wrenching. Most of Jesus' disciples were long gone at this point, but there were two who made the trip. There were two who were there on Golgotha that day, Mary, his mother, and John, his closest friend. I'm not a mother, but I'm a father. I wouldn't witness such heinous things happening to my children, but Mary is there in front of the cross, and for Jesus' third saying, statement, he looks directly at her, and he says, Mother, this is now your son, and son, this is now your mother. Jesus took care of his mama while on the cross. At noon, Jesus would say the fourth statement. The reason I know it was at noon is because the Gospels record that at noon, the sun, which was in the middle of the sky and very bright, became black as that of night. And it was right then where Jesus says his fourth statement from the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other time in Jesus' recorded life, when he speaks to God, he refers to him as Father, Daddy, but not now, not for this fourth statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why in my darkest hour do you choose to leave, God? For one reason. Because in that moment, all of the sin, guilt, and iniquity of the world was being placed upon Jesus. He bore upon himself your sin and mine. He took it and became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He that is blessed became cursed so that we that are cursed might be blessed while we were still sinners Christ died for us. And a just and pure and holy God can have nothing to do with sin, not to mention the collective sin of the world. So in that moment, as Jesus became sin for us, God had to turn his back so that Jesus could fully and completely pay my debt and take my place. And he experienced that without the loving touch of his father. The fifth statement is simple. Jesus simply said, I'm thirsty. 
I think he needed a drink to get out the sixth and the seventh statements, which he said around three o'clock that afternoon. And I think he said them as one statement, but we separate them into two. It says that in a loud voice for the sixth statement, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And I think immediately after that, he said the seventh statement, which is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then the Bible says Jesus died. What had he finished? What was complete that Jesus would make such a declarative statement? Well, it's very simple. His whole entire purpose for coming to this earth to save you and me and bring eternal life was now done. He had one last thing to do after bearing the sins of all the world. He had to pay the price for them. He had to die. And he knew with his next breath that he would, and it would be done. As the band comes back up here, we're going to pause at this moment in the story because it's at this moment that we need to sit and feel the magnitude of what is happening here. Our ushers are going to stand up and they're going to start to serve you communion elements right now. They're going to give you the bread and the cup and I want you to hang on to those and we'll take them here in just a moment. But as you get the bread and the cup, I want you to realize something that they represent the body and the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. And that what Jesus did on the cross on this day, the story that we've told thus far, it has a purpose. The purpose is most simply explained in that what happened on this day happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, that the sovereign plan of God to save all mankind would be fulfilled. But I believe there's a greater purpose for why, why Jesus had to die in this way. And and it's very simply this. There's not one of you in this room who has set in this story and in any way grasped the magnitude of it that can then look at God who allowed this to happen to his son and say to him, you don't love me. There's not one person in this room who can look at that and go, God, I just don't believe you've done enough to prove to me that you care. Because God sent his one and only son to this earth for this purpose, to die this death for you. In communion, what we're about to do together as a body, we do it to remember this truth. That God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son. Everything that happened happened for a purpose, and that purpose was so that you, church, would know how much God loves you. So we're going to sing a song, and whether you sing it or whether you allow us to sing it over you, we're going to sing about how deep the Father's love is for all of us. And when you're ready then, as we sing this song together, I'm going to ask you to take the bread and to take the cup, whenever you're ready, to remember just how much God does love you. Father, I pray that as we take of you the bread and the cup, that those in this room today who do not believe that you love them would feel your love in such a tangible way that it would transform them. 
that those in this room who know your love would celebrate you and your greatness, and that we ultimately today, God, would know how deep and how wide is your love for us. We thank you for this moment, and we give you the glory as we remember you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.